so we're standing here, sitting, worshiping, and I just, I was overwhelmed in a moment. Something feels so right about this. I, I don't know if it's you so much, Ken, <laughs> but just God's kids. Oh, we'll get to that. Don't, don't you worry. God's kids, just, just gathering outside. It's a beautiful day. No pretense, a beautiful but old church building that we have to meet next to. These are, these are the kind of days that you want to look back on and say, man, I, I got to be a part of something really special, something unique that God was doing. Um, this, is, this is when families begin to, to make memories, sharing moments together. I hope you guys can feel that. It's good. Um, my name is Simon, by the way, if we haven't met, and you are at Grace City, or Sidewalk City, as we've been calling it lately, and um, yeah, before too long, we, we're, just, we're really going to have to think about going inside this building, um, because last time I checked, it, it does eventually start raining again in Portland. <laughs> that's, that's a thing, last time I checked. Um, but yeah, I reckon we've got a, at least a few sunny days left. Um, in fact, just before I forget, um, I suppose in way of announcements, we will do this uh, two more times in September. Um, we've kind of been doing a week-on, week-off rhythm, if you haven't noticed. So next week, we'll have our online service again. And then on the 13th of September, we'll do this again. And then we'll take another week off. And then, of course, weather pending, uh, we will have a sidewalk service one more time on the 20th. Am I getting my, my days right? 27th. 27th of September. So online, sidewalk, online, sidewalk. Um, and then the other thing, we'll, we'll have all this online, but I want to just highlight it now because this is actually quite important. Um, if everything goes according to plan, and who has a plan anymore these days besides God, but if everything goes according to our, our little plan, uh, we're going we're gonna to move inside come October. Um, and this is obviously something that we've been thinking a lot about. We, we want to be wise, guys, we really do. And we want to be loving. Um, the, the virus is still a thing, obviously. And... Um, I don't know of anyone who has like all of the answers, which is why we're really just, we're, we're taking it one week at a time. We're praying a lot. We're trying to pool all of the wisdom we, we can. We can. Um, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to make the move. Come October, we're going to begin to have services inside. Um, it won't be incredibly complicated as far as adults go. We'll continue to wear masks until obviously um, the authorities um, and all of the smart doctors um, sort of instruct us otherwise. And uh, we'll do social distancing and all that. But the kids, that'll be, that, that's one that we're still trying to figure out exactly how we can actually um, continue to practice social distancing and be safe in a way that's really going to honor families and kids. But we're thinking through all of that. Um, but in October, we're going we're gonna to move inside. In between now and then, we're going to have two other special meetings. And again, guys, this will all be on the website, but two more meetings. So on the Sundays that we're not meeting here on the sidewalk, 
we're going to have, um, so the, the Sundays we'll have online services in the morning. Those evenings, which will be the third, the next Sunday, the 6th and the 13th, the 6th and the 20th. I'm sorry, I, I just, I can't do this, all right? The two Sundays that we're having our online services in the morning, that, those evenings, Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, we're going to congregate inside. It's not going to be a worship service. We're not going to be singing and all of that. Um, but we're going to be talking about what, what is the state of Grace City um, now? It's been a long, weird season. And we want to begin to sort of refocus um, remind ourselves of, of what we're actually doing here, the vision that God has given us, the vision that has not changed, and what things are going to look like moving forward in the fall, what small groups are going to look like, um, what leadership is going to look like, um, some of the challenges that we'll be facing, and some really extraordinary opportunities that are before us. Um, but it's going to be very, very important that we come together as a, a church family and, and look at some of those things and own this together. There is no like elite team getting paid big bucks to like make all of the decisions. Um, that's just not what we even want. We want to be a church family that comes together and, and owns problems together and, and tackles these things together. But that means we need to come together and actually have a meeting. So we're going to do that two times in September. Um, and I'd like for all of you guys to be a part of that. One of the, the weekends, next weekend, of course, will be Labor Day weekend. I am aware of this, so if you're out of town, there's grace for you, um, but if you can make it, we're going to go ahead and, and utilize the, 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 the opportunity, so that's next Sunday. You guys with me? Yeah, announcements, totally boring, I know. Let's go to uh, God's Word. If you brought your Bible or you want to open your, turn on your phone, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22 tonight. This will be the last parable that we're looking at for the summer. Starting next week, we're going we're gonna to shift gears a little bit. So Matthew chapter 22, this is the parable of the wedding feast. Maybe. Matthew 22, parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. He sent them, but they could not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, 
friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Heavenly Father, won't you help us as we consider these words, your words, and what they mean for us. Holy Spirit, won't you be our teacher? Help me as I articulate uh, the words that I believe you have put on my heart. And help us all to have hearts and minds that are open and receptive to you tonight. Lord, we don't want to merely learn more about you. We want to, to grow in relationship with you. We want to become more like the sons and daughters that you have created us to be, that you desire for us to be, that we would become more like Jesus in every way. Amen. This is quite a parable, is it not? Could you imagine being at that wedding feast? Have you ever been to a wedding reception where you saw someone get kicked out for not having like the right attire? Have you ever gone to a wedding only to realize that you might be that guy or girl? <laughs> I, I actually, it's one of the things that I love about Oregon. I realized when we moved here, um, what, about five years ago or so, as we were living in Corvallis, uh, the, the attire, the, the, what do you call it, the, the dress code, is much more laxed in the Pacific Northwest. It's great. You can go to a wedding in shorts, and it, it's probably not totally appropriate in most weddings, but you could completely get away with it. You're not going to be thrown out and cast into the outer darkness. Um, but that happened in this parable. Of course, it is a parable, which means we're not, I mean, Jesus isn't like recounting like, oh, let me tell you about something that happened. Um, this, he's making a point. He's telling a story, um, a powerful, true story to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. That's how the parable started. What is the kingdom of God like? Um, like all of these parables, um, and Brandon Gray, you did a phenomenal job emphasizing this in your message last Sunday. A context is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. And the context for this particular parable, um, it's actually quite broad. We need, we need to back up virtually an entire chapter to get the context for this parable. And when we do that, what you discover is that uh, this is the third parable in, in a trilogy of parables. This is a parable that Jesus tells, uh, one of three parables that Jesus tells in response, in response to, to something that's happened. So we're going to back up quickly, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to summarize the the first two parables, and we're going to make some sense out of this. So, chapter twenty-one, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. Um, he's been making his way to Jerusalem now for weeks, um, arguably months. He knows what's about to happen. In fact, just before he enters Jerusalem, he tells his disciples once again 
that he's going to be crucified. And this is his purpose. This is his aim. The disciples don't get it. Jesus knows exactly what is about to happen. So Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. The crowds begin spreading their cloaks and palm branches on the road, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're quoting from Psalm 118. This is the passage that spoke of the coming king, the Messiah who would come and liberate God's people. They were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, and they were enacting this ancient poem, this song, Psalm 118, in response. Then Jesus does exactly what they would have expected him to do. He made a beeline for the temple. Of course, that's where the king would go, to the temple. And he goes inside. He assesses the situation and he begins to flip over tables. Some of you are like, yeah, that's the Jesus I like. He walks into a temple that has apparently been taken over by, um, I guess you could say, religious hypocrites. But probably not in the way we think of religious hypocrites. Arguably, these people, these religious leaders had set up tables uh, money-changing stations in the temple so that foreigners who had come on pilgrimage to make sacrifices in the temple, they would have had to exchange their sort of foreign currency, their, their dirty money for temple currency and then use that to buy a pigeon or a dove or something they could use to make a sacrifice to the Lord in the temple. And in their minds, arguably, they, would have been, they, they thought they would have been doing a service to God's people. Jesus saw right through the pretense and he says, you have made my father's house a house that's meant to be a place for prayer for all nations into a den of thieves. You're exploiting foreigners. You're making money off of these people and it is not good. And he begins to flip the tables in the temple. Epic. If you ever, you know, wonder to yourself, man, is Jesus strong enough? Does he have the courage? Is he bold enough to confront pretense in the church? Absolutely he does. Absolutely. Amen or oh my. <laughs> so he does that. And then the next day, the, the priests and the elders confront Jesus naturally and question his authority. They say, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you the authority to come in and disrupt the system? Who are you to flip the tables? They have a bit of an exchange Go back and read it for yourself, Matthew 21. But they ask him a question and he says, well, let me ask you a question. And he kind of shuts them down. And, and then he proceeds to tell the parables, three parables. The first parable is very short. It's the parable of the two sons. And he goes something like this, a man with two sons. He says to the first son, son, go and work in my vineyard. And the son says, nah. He says, no. He refuses. He says, no, I've got other things going on. I'm not going to do that. But then in verse 29, it says that he changed his mind. Although he said no in the beginning, he eventually reconsidered. He came to his senses, I guess. 
And he ended up going to the vineyard and he obeyed his father. He honored his father. He submitted to the will of his father. He changed his mind. And the father said to his second son, son, go work in my vineyard. And the son said, sure, dad, I'll go. And then some time went by and he didn't go. He totally flaked out. He said he would, but he didn't. And so the moral of the story is that the second son, he had the right answer, but the first son had repentance. Repentance. That's one of those theological terms that kind of gets thrown around sometimes. It's often a scary word, but it simply means to change your mind, to admit that you're wrong and to change your mind. The first son didn't have the best answer, but he had a good heart. And in the end, he repented and he submitted to the will of his father. That's the first parable. The second parable is simply called the parable of the tenants. And it goes something like this. The owner of a vineyard decided to lease his vineyard to certain tenants to oversee its production. And when the season of harvest came to harvest the fruit of the vineyard, the owner sent some of his servants to collect the fruit. But the tenants refused to turn over the fruit and instead decided to take ownership of the vineyard for themselves. And they even killed the servants and eventually they even murdered the owner's son. And that's the parable. In the parable, you could say that the tenants technically had a lot of fruit. They owned the vineyard, or at least they had taken over ownership of the vineyard. Technically, they possessed plenty of fruit. They enjoyed all the benefits of being placed in charge of the vineyard. And again, in the end, they even fancied themselves the new owners. It would seem that they had forgotten or had refused to acknowledge from whom the vineyard had actually come. But the owner didn't forget, nor was the owner impressed. Because the owner wasn't looking for the faux fruit of self-righteous bosses. The owner was looking for those who would humbly submit, who would honor the owner of the vineyard, who would remember that everything that they had been given was from the owner. In fact, the owner was looking for a people who would embrace the fact that nothing that we can or work for or earn in this life can't ultimately be traced back to the generosity and the faithfulness, faithfulness of our provider. And in fact, you could even say that this owner wasn't just the owner of the vineyard. He was the vine itself. In the words of Jesus, he said, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from those who liked to act fruitful, but in fact knew nothing of the true fruit of a godly life. Both parables, and we'll get to the third one just now, 
both parables describe people who were the first to be included in God's plan, in his vineyard, in the life, the blessed life that God was inviting them to participate in. But neither one of them really got there in the end. The one had, he had the right answer. He knew what to say, but he didn't have a repentant heart. The other had all of the appearances of fruitfulness, but somehow had gotten confused about where all of that fruit had actually come from. One son knew what to say, and the tenants, well, they were great at running the show, but in the end, it was the other son and the new tenants who experienced the true life of God. Because God's not impressed with lip service or fancy spiritual lifestyles. He's looking for something else, something more, something that's uh, more substantial. You could say, conversely, that in fact, God's looking for people who are willing to admit they're wrong and change their mind. He's looking for people who know something of repentance. And he's looking for people who are willing to embrace the fact that every good thing that they've worked for truly can be traced back to God's goodness, his generosity, his faithfulness. He's looking for people who know that apart from him, love, joy, peace, patience, fruit of the spirit, these things are nothing more than just willpower or or trying to to work harder or do better because apart from him, we can do nothing because he's not only the owner of the vineyard, he is the vine itself, as Jesus said. Which brings us to our third parable. The parable of the wedding feast. Which basically is telling the same story, but with a twist at the end. Quite a twist it is. So again, it starts out with a certain group of people who are invited to the king's wedding feast. They're included. They're invited. They're welcome to join in the the work, the party. But they refuse. They're too busy to show up. And the consequences are awful. They end up murdering the king's servants and even his own son. And the king gets angry and has them killed and their city destroyed. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an awful picture. But then the king tells his servants to go back, to go out a second time and invite anyone they can find. He says in verse 10, they went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. He said, just get anyone you can get to come. The invitation is for everyone. Doesn't matter where they're from, what they look like, who they're with, what they're about, good, bad, just invite everyone. What a party, huh? What a party. But then comes the twist. Guys, you got to get this. Here comes the twist. Verse 11 and 12, it says, when the king finally came out to greet his guests, He saw one man there who wasn't wearing 
proper wedding attire. And he said to the man, friend, how did you get in here? What are you doing here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. So he had the guy kicked out, cast into the outer darkness. What on earth is going to talk about a fashion faux pas? What do you got on there, friend? What is that, a clip on? Outer darkness. Away with you. That's nuts. What is going on? What is life in the family of God all about? Okay, here we go. The three parables. Let's see if we can connect the dots. It's not about saying all the right things. It's not about having the right answer. It's about having a repentant heart. You may say stupid things all the time. I've heard people do that occasionally. Your theology may not be all that. I'm not saying truth doesn't matter. That would be a tragic takeaway from the parable. But the one son didn't say the right thing, but he changed his mind. He had a repentant heart. And so he experienced the life in his father's vineyard. It's not about impressing God or others with your spiritual resume or religious appearances. It's about the fruit of the spirit, the outworking of a humble and contrite heart. Many are really good at putting on spiritual appearances. And you can run the show all day long. You can pray like no one's business. You know all the right verses. You know exactly what to say. But do you know the one from whom every good thing comes? And it's not about good people versus bad people. Did you catch that in verse 10? Go out and call everyone. Good, bad, I don't care. Just get them in the party. It's not about good or bad people, whatever you did or think you did or didn't do to get invited to the party because everyone's invited to the party. Everyone is invited to the party. There is no prerequisite. Everyone gets the invite They're all done with calligraphy. They're all gold-plated. Everyone gets invited. How scandalous is that? However, now here's the twist. However, it's also not about simply getting invited. It's not even just about simply being humble. Having a humble attitude or a humble heart. It's about what you're wearing. When the father (laughs) or the owner of the vineyard or the king shows up, it's about who you're wearing. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. You're like, what on earth are you actually talking about? Here's the bottom line. You don't get included in God's family because of what you said or all the right things you think you got right or because you think you've mastered all the right spiritual emotions. You get included 
Because in Jesus Christ, sinners are clothed in righteousness. Guys, let that sink in. Bottom line is, you're not included in the family of God because you got the right answer. You're not included in the family of God because you've mastered all the right religious motions. The only reason any of us are or will be invited into the family of God is because in Jesus Christ, sinners are clothed in righteousness. It's not about how articulate you are or how smart you think you are. Talking to myself. It's not about how good you think you are at religion. It's about how incredibly faithful, unfathomably faithful, merciful, gracious our God is, who he is, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. This is the great exchange. This is the scandal of the cross. This is why Jesus came to Jerusalem. This is why God entered into the world Not to merely affirm some kind of spiritual system of bartering for divine favor in a temple somewhere. Jesus flipped those tables over. No, he came to die for us. On the cross, he exchanged his royal robes of sonship for our torn up rags of shame, insecurity, sin, and rejection. In the words of the Apostle Paul, in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. Galatians 3, chapter 3, 26. In Jesus Christ, sinners are clothed in righteousness. What a great scandal. What a gracious God. What are the implications? What are the implications of a God like that? Now you might be thinking, but what about, what about, what about the son who never showed up? What about the tenants who took over the vineyard? What about the guests who were invited initially but were just too busy to show up? I mean, according to the parables, it went unfathomably bad for them. Mm. Yeah, let's not skip that part. But I would argue that that truth contrasted with all of those who did get invited in contrast to what God did do for us, that just makes the faithfulness of God all the more greater. That just makes his grace all the more valuable. That makes his love all the more wonderful, unfathomable, beautiful. That our God would 
not just wipe out the planet, everyone who's ever gotten it wrong, everyone who ever stepped sideways, anyone who ever showed up with a clip-on tie to the the wedding where you should have been wearing a three-piece. No, that's not his objective. That's not what he desires. He's gone to impossible lengths to get everyone inside, that every single lost son and daughter would come home that we would all be in the party. That's the point of the parable. What are the implications of that? Number one, in the family of God, there's no room for arrogance. There's absolutely no room for arrogance. I know better. My answers are smarter. Oh, I want to say all sorts of controversial things right now. Guys, we're living in this crazy, insane, like our city has lost its mind world right now where people are literally, and I don't mean this in in any, in a trite way whatsoever, but people are literally killing each other on the streets because everyone's convinced that, no, I'm right. You should be shot. That's not how the family of God is the family of God. There's no arrogance in the family of God. There's no room for arrogance. If you have arrogance in your heart, my friend, you've got the wrong attire on. You've lost touch with what Jesus has done for us. In the family of God, there's no room for greed or entitlement. I deserve better. No, you don't. Nor do I. Let's not talk about what we deserve, all right? That's a, that's a dark path to go down. Let's talk about how gracious God is and how he's loved us despite what we quote unquote think we deserve or not. In the family of God, there's no room for judging your neighbor. I am better. I think better. I deserve better. I am better. Compared to who exactly? In the family of God, it's as if the only thing there's really a whole lot of room for is truth, grace, and hearts overflowing with the love of God. More than enough room for that. But that's about all there's room for. And there's a clear invitation to respond. There is a very clear invitation to respond. Who are you wearing tonight? What are you rocking? I have no idea what what I'm wearing. I got Vans. I think these are Old Navy. I don't know. I'm trying to put on Christ. Every day. When I leave the house, when I check my feed, my wife, who checks BBC daily, if it wasn't for her, I'd probably be clueless, told me that Portland, our beloved city, was the BBC's top story this morning. World headlines. Because we're shooting each other in the street. 
I think about that. I'm Lord, I'm, I think, Lord Jesus, help us. Help us all. Clothe me in your mercy today that I might have mercy for those who for those who might otherwise be my enemies. Lord Jesus, fill me with your love that my heart might be overflowing with the kind of love that compelled you to pray for your enemies, those who crucified you, those who had it all wrong, enemies of God. Lord Jesus, clothe us in your righteousness that we would walk in great humility, that we would be your people with hearts that are broken, that are contrite, that are humble. That we wouldn't feel the need to impress each other. You know how church is, right? Show up, a little crowd. Something about a crowd. All of a sudden, we all have to, you know, make sure we got it together. Check your fly. Make sure your mask is on straight. I finally got, finally got myself a custom mask. My wife bought me this. It's really cool. It's very comfortable. And she said, Simon, I got you this mask at the Gap. I have a Gap mask. And I saw it and I felt disgusted. I'm like, no, 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 no. I refuse. I refuse to have a Gap mask. And then I put it on. I'm like, ooh, this is nice. (laughs) There's no room for pretense in the family of God. There's just no room for it. Because we put on Christ. So here's the call to respond. Have you, have you put on Christ? I know it's obviously it's a, it's a spiritual metaphor, right? But it's actually, it, it's, a, it's an allusion to the life that is submerged in the spirit that has been filled with the Spirit, that is saturated with the Spirit. It's a picture of the life that's been buried with Jesus in his death, into the waters of baptism, and then raised up again into new life, that we would just be drenched in the Spirit of Christ, that we would be covered in the life of Jesus. That's what it means to be clothed in righteousness. And my question for all of you guys today, have you been clothed in Jesus Have you made that decision to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to admit that I probably have got a lot wrong. But surely God has the answers. Surely Jesus is right. And I'd like to change my mind. I'd like to admit that I don't have it all figured out. But Jesus does. And I want to put my trust in him. That's called repentance. And I have zero interest whatsoever trying to impress the world with my religious pretense or my appearance of godliness. Trust me, you don't want that. It's exhausting. You're probably not that good at it either. I wasn't, never was. Can I appeal to you? 
If you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, would you make that decision tonight? Maybe we'll take it one step further. What if in two weeks from now, when we gather here on the sidewalk again, we bring our horse trough out here and fill it up with a bunch of warm water? What do you think about that? Rain or shine? I'm going to call it. In two weeks from now, we're going to fill up our horse trough. We've never used it for baptism before. It's our coffee table at the moment. In the basement, have you not noticed? Yeah. And we're going to fill it up. And if you want to get baptized, you're going to have an opportunity. It's going to be a memorable moment. And if you're like, ah, I think I want that, but I've got just a couple of questions, and I know it's not about having all the right answers, but yeah, let's talk. Let's totally talk. It is about understanding the gospel. Understanding is important. And then a couple weeks from now, we can celebrate together. You guys with me? Can we stand together?